Welcome again to the Novice to Office podcast. I am your host, Trey Bam. Today, we take a journey. Well, I guess we've already begun a journey, but today we take a journey across America. We will stand on one sea and stroll across the mountains and prairies to the ocean white with foam on the other sea. Sorry for the poetry, but I don't know how else to sell what is otherwise a bureaucratic process, that of creating a state. Uh, and I've got to do this 37 times within the next 30 minutes as we relate today's episode, How 13 Became 50 Republics, Territories, and States. So let's not waste a second. I won't do it all 50 times. We've seen in our podcast, the United States is a nation driven by associations, by terms and conditions. Uh, sure, there are deep interests behind this. Uh, sometimes it's a lifestyle, a religious lifestyle, or sometimes it's purely economic. And by economic, I don't just mean the idea of getting rich. Uh, I mean, even more modest, maybe even more noble, independent minded endeavors of simply trying to create a family that is safe, stable, and provided for. From a historical political perspective, this family in America has looked different at different moments in our country's history, but it's always been a microeconomic unit that's moving in a certain direction. I don't believe it's exclusively a microeconomic entity, but it is economic nonetheless. And ultimately, this microeconomic unit comes into contact with other units and associations begin to form. Alexis de Tocqueville was a French nobleman who traveled to America in 1831 in part to escape some political trouble he was in. De Tocqueville was well-educated and was determined to help his then unstable country better understand democracy and democratic concepts. One of these was his observation on how Americans were, quote, constantly joining together in groups. <laughs> he saw this habit of associationism as a robust antibody against pretty much all forms of tyranny, be it a despot or the tyranny of the majority even. I think one of the most essential of these groups is a state, the formation of a state adopted after the U.S. Constitution. And we take this for granted in American history. But today, what I want us to look at is we're going to go really quick uh, and we're going to look through states through the lens as a simple group of individuals. And this is a bedrock concept I want us to try and lay hold of. And then things like local government will make more sense, as well as probably some, some of the federal issues. So after this, I'm going to conclude today's podcast by talking briefly about some of the tech that drove the creation of America's 50 states. I use the creation of the states as another way of saying the westward expansion of the United States. This latter phrase is loaded and it has a bunch of covered wagons and cavalry charges and mistreatment of Indians and stuff associated with it. I want to talk more simply and abstractly and we'll begin with Kentucky, which was the first state added after the original 13 instituted the federal government as we know it today. There was actually considerable debate during the Constitutional Convention about how to add states or what they would be. Some thought they New states would hold a kind of inferior role to the original 13. They also worried about how to actually add one mechanically and legally. During the convention, they did create a clause in the Constitution allowing for admission, but they punted to the new government on exactly how to do it. And the region of the new nation between the Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River along the south bank of the 980-mile-long Ohio River provided the first test. Now, technically, Kentucky is not United States number four. If you go by the date of admission, state number 14 is Vermont. 
in New England. And that's kind of a long and complicated story. But Vermont was actually an independent republic for much of the Revolutionary War and, and well into the 1790s. But when they wanted to join, that affected Kentucky statehood, and it would set a giant precedent for future statehoods. Initially, Kentucky was considered part of Virginia. Uh, Virginia governed it or tried. American settlers poured through the Cumberland Gap and other lanes blazed by legendary frontiersmen like Daniel Boone. Once across these mountains, the settlers found incredible quantities of rich flatlands, all easily connected by navigable rivers. During the Articles of Confederation period before the Constitution, Kentucky held several constitutional conventions to figure out how to secede from Virginia, which they saw as their mother country. The state was the mother country in their case. Well, Virginia saw how difficult it was to govern these lands from way back in the east in Richmond, and they were willing to go along with secession because they knew that Kentucky would become a part of the United States, and the land area that they were in was ceded to them as uh, by the British as a result of the 1783 treaty. By 1788, Kentucky was breaking away and and. Congress under the Articles of Confederation was just about to admit them, but at almost the same moment in July of 1788, New Hampshire became the first state to ratify the new constitution. The Confederation government didn't then decided to wait. They said, well, we better hold on. And then in early 1789, under the new Congress, when it convened, when it was gaveled in, the constitution allowed for admission, but the fir that first Congress had to figure out what the qualifications had to be, etc. They eventually settled on this through a bill that's generally described as an enabling act. All this did was say, hey, if you, Kentucky, want to be a state and part of this republic, then you need to meet these criteria. And for the most part, the criteria centered on population. These enabling acts also centered on whether or not said state would allow slavery. Um, so they'd have a convention, and Kentucky's application for admission under the new Congress tested this issue for the first time because they wanted slavery. At the same time, Congress did go ahead and decide that states would be admitted on an equal footing. That is, they would come in at the same legislative status as the, as the pre-existing 13, two senators and all that. But the debate over Kentucky and slavery slowed its admission down. Slavery had been legal in all the colonies in some form at various points over the years, but there were those who knew it was wrong and incompatible with the principles of the re revolution. And so they banned it. Those states were primarily in the North, which had economies that didn't rely on it. So it was a little more convenient, I guess. Uh, a solution for Kentucky's admission with, sla with slavery presented itself in 1791 when that Vermont Republic decided to join the Union. Vermont had abolished slavery by this point. So Vermont got an enabling act. And once they met their criteria, the state of Vermont was approved by Congress, then immediately followed by quickly by Kentucky, which was pending. And uh, as I said, slavery was approved in Kentucky, so one free, one slave. Congress does statehood resolutions by what's called a joint resolution. If you ever watch C-SPAN and, you know, if you're running out of Netflix, that may be looking pretty compelling. But if Congress is debating a joint resolution, it'll be across the screen as HJR123 or whatever. A joint resolution contains fixed language that both chambers can agree on and is generally administrative in nature. It's probably the uh, most simplest of resolutions. But in addition to becoming states 14 and 15 respectively, Vermont and Kentucky together like that served to set a precedent for how a United States that accommodated slavery would expand. States were admitted basically on a one for you, one for me basis. And states number 15, which was Tennessee through number 30, which was Wisconsin, 
was we're all pretty much admitted in this manner, just one for one. Well, probably with the exception of Louisiana in 1812 because of some international circumstances. State 31 was California. And this is where this one for you and one for me agreement over admitting slave and free began to start to fall apart. I won't get into the Compromise of 1850 because it's very complex, but in a nutshell, the admission of California and that legislative effort now suddenly meant there were more free states than slave represented in Congress. The slaveholding states started getting nervous that they might be outnumbered on votes. Uh, The first battle that slave states then tried to fight was in 1854 when Congress passed the Kansas-Nebraska Act to allow the Great Plains, which had been a territory, to get organized. I need to pause here and for a second explain how territories worked in the United States. Territories were and still are basically lands belonging to the United States without any locally recognized authority. The first statute I guess laying this out was the Northwest Ordinance back in 1787. The Articles of Confederation passed that and that ordinance was basically a law saying, hey, up over there above Ohio, that's a territory that belongs to the United States. And here's what you got to do if you want to get any of it organized, if you want to make an association. And territories are administered directly from Washington. Their law enforcement is overseen by a U.S. Marshal. If you watch the old Westerns uh, and the federal bench governs disputes. The U.S. had doubled geographically as at the end of the revolution with the Treaty of Paris. Uh, And then it doubled again in 1803 when Thomas Jefferson, as president, purchased Louisiana from Napoleon, who was needing some immediate cash. So there was a lot of territory for the federal government to manage. And basically what would happen is various population associations within a territory would organize a convention, express their desire to join the union uh, with a petition or resolutions, and then Congress would give an enabling legislation. They'd meet the criteria, then they'd submit their paperwork to Congress, and then they would try to come up with a joint resolution for admittance. Now, back to the Great Plains, that's where Kansas and Nebraska were. Lawmakers led by Stephen Douglas in the 1850s wanted to allow popular sovereignty to determine whether or not slavery should be allowed to be formed there. Uh, Although Douglas was from Illinois, he was a Democrat devoted to Jeffersonian and Jacksonian principles. Remember, we talked about popular sovereignty, and this was all shared, of course, by Southern Democrats, but they also wanted slavery. Douglas thought the problem could be solved basically by majoritarianism. And here in a minute, we're going to talk about the two technologies that drove the creation of the other 37 states, one of which was the cotton gin. But the problem in Kansas and Nebraska and the Plains Territory was that it was hot enough down in southern Kansas to grow cotton. And slavery was legal next door in Missouri. And Missouri had been admitted in 1820 with the understanding that there would be no more slavery above its southern border, which was also known as the 3630 parallel. And this was part of that one for you, one for me strategy. Douglas, I think, knew this, but he hoped that the two states likely to form, Kansas and Nebraska, would then keep up with the one-to-one agreement that Kansas would be slave and Nebraska free. But Douglas didn't understand how the country was changing, and he didn't count on those committed, the commitment of those determined to end slavery. So by allowing popular sovereignty, majoritarianism, to determine slavery above the Missouri borderline, uh, what happened was Congress uh, radicalized certain elements of the abolitionist movement. One of these radicals was an itinerant uh, skin tanner named John Brown who infused his desire to help black Americans with an Old Testament-style fervor. In 1855, Brown and his sons crossed into the Kansas Territory with a wagon load of weapons. And I'll tell what happened after this shameless plug. Are you ready to become a change agent in your community? 
Are you tired of the same old people running your local government? Well, your country needs you in office now more than ever. My name is Trey Bam, and I have a lifetime of experience in politics and government. I have either managed or supported more than three dozen campaigns. I want you to get elected in your community, and I can train you with my new innovative online course, Novice to Office. Novice to Office instructs the beginning candidate in everything they need to know to win their election. That's right. I condense the expertise and knowledge used by political professionals and make it available to you. My course will teach you the three core concepts of campaigning you can use to be successful at winning your election. If running for office is something you've thought about, but the how-to seems vague or intimidating, novice to office takes away the mystery. In my course, you'll learn how to use social media to reach those likely to vote in your election. You'll be provided with a draft budget and learn the basics of fundraising. You'll be able to organize a strong and effective get-out-the-vote effort. And I will take the information you provide and craft a message that can be tailored for any occasion. My course also includes a 30-minute one-on-one consultation about delivering your message. And we'll also discuss what's unique about your campaign. That's two hours of professional guidance. Using my approach, 80% of my clients either won their election outright or made the runoff, sometimes having never even set foot in the public square. There's no reason state-of-the-art political consulting should only be available to those who can raise the most money. Novice to Office makes consulting that normally costs thousands of dollars available for less than 500. The course, its templates, all upgrades, and discounts on additional consulting and future modules will be yours for a lifetime. Click the link below or sign up at novicetooffice.com and become a change agent for your family, your neighbors, and your community. That's novicetooffice.com. My name is Trey Bam and I wholeheartedly approve this message. Welcome back. We've been talking about the creation of the 50 United States, and we've hit a snag on the Great Plains in 1855 as we try to create states number 32 and 33. Northeastern radical named John Brown has crossed into southern Kansas to fix the pro-slavery problems caused by Congress, and he's done so with a wagon load of guns and ammo. Brown was determined to fight the slavers if necessary, but he thought that the idea of armed popular sovereignty would work. In 1856, then, his cause was helped when a gang went into Lawrence, Kansas and destroyed two anti-slavery newspapers. In retaliation, Brown and his sons descended upon a pro-slavery farmer living along Potawatomi Creek, which is 50 miles southeast of Lawrence. They pulled the farmer and his sons from their house and then hacked them to death with swords in the darkness. Retributive violence followed for several weeks after this with the deaths of around three dozen people, thus giving that part of the territory the nickname Bleeding Kansas. And then at this point, the nation kind of stopped marching west as it, as it erupted into sectional violence and 
the Civil War. The other abolitionist, Frederick Douglass, regularly attributed the start of the Civil War uh, to a second attempt Brown later tried to do in which he wanted to cause a slave insurrection in Virginia during the autumn of 1859 up in Harper's Ferry. Remember what I told you about the Southern states ratifying the Constitution out of a sense of security two episodes ago? I, I mentioned it briefly. Well, to them, that meant domestic security. The commander of the U.S. Marines sent to put down Brown's insurrection was an army colonel who happened to be at home in Virginia from Texas, and his name was Robert E. Lee. At this point, we have to skip over the Civil War, which is my most favorite subject, because we're adding states. But in spite of 11 states temporarily leaving the Union from 1861 to 1865, Congress added two more. In 1863, 50 mountain counties counter-seceded from Virginia and were admitted to the Union as state number 35, West Virginia, in order to boost his chances in the Electoral College during, during the 1864 presidential race, Abraham Lincoln rushed through the admission of Nevada one week before Election Day. <laughs> uh, then in 1867, Nebraska finally became state number 37. Kansas had managed to get admitted as a free state back in 1861, right as the Confederacy was forming. In states 38, Colorado through 45, Utah would go through the territorial transformations into states uh, through, for the rest of the 19th century. Uh, Utah had been settled for almost 50 years by the time of their statehood in, in 1896. Their admission dragged on due to their practice of polygamy. In their enabling legislation, Congress required the people in the territory to write a ban on polygamy into their constitution, which they did after the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints renounced the practice in 1890. The final five states of our union were added during the 20th century. In the Southwest, Oklahoma, New Mexico, and Arizona would round out the so-called lower 48 during the early 1900s. In the case of Oklahoma during the 19 aughts, what was interesting there was they almost created the first Native American majority state. Representatives of the five so-called civilized tribes, and they were the Cherokee the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, the Creek, and the Seminole, they held a convention and petitioned Washington for both an Indian Territory state and then another one created from the Oklahoma Territory, which was in the West. Now, these tribes were in no way all the Native American groups now relocated to the that territory by this point. Andrew Jackson had created the area initially for the forced resettlement of tribes from the southeastern U.S., but later the southern Plains Indians, such as the Comanche and the Kiowa, were also sent there. But again, it's an association, and the idea of a Native American state, though, was rejected by Congress and President Theodore Roosevelt. They didn't want that kind of association, I guess, due to racism. The Indian representatives went back home and decided to work with everyone else in the territory and apply for one single state. The word Oklahoma is from the Choctaw language, meaning just the word people. And had they gotten their way, the Indian Territory state would have been named Sequoia after the great Cherokee linguist and teacher. In 1959, Alaska and Hawaii were admitted in large measure because they had seen action on their soil during World War II. Alaska way out on the Aleutians and, of course, Pearl Harbor. Alaska had been one of those, another one of those purchases by the federal government, that one by, from the Russians back in the 1860s. And it was just a territory before gold was discovered up there in the turn of the century. Uh, for state number 50, Hawaii, it also, actually, it's appropriate that they're the 50th one because they transitioned from a kingdom to a state. Vermont, West Florida... Texas and uh, California sort of were republics who became states. Hawaii was technically a kingdom. And their statehood dragged on up until uh, the 50s because 
they had had that proud tradition of uh, of being a kingdom, and they became a territory kind of by force back in the 1880s. You know, and, and if those states hadn't been attacked by the Japanese, Alaska in particular, they may have stayed territories forever. To this day, the population of Alaska, the whole population is less than the city of Seattle, and, and that is quite an association. <laughs> I want to wrap up our time by discussing what made the creation of these states so successful by focusing on two technologies that got America settled in short order. How did all the settlers move so quickly from the eastern 13 states out into the continent? Well, it wasn't just the wagon. I mean, had American settlement been left up to the wagon, truthfully, we'd probably still be all lumbering along. Uh, but during the early 19th century, all heavy long-distance traffic was moved by waterways. And although the U.S. has incredible riverine systems, those waterways, just the rivers weren't the ones that made the difference. Not long after the American Revolution, one of those new state legislatures, New York, began discussing a way to connect New York City with the Great Lakes in a way that bypassed the St. Lawrence River way up in Canada, especially since the St. Lawrence was controlled by America's enemy at the time, Great Britain. In 1808, a survey for the Erie Canal to from the Hudson to Lake Erie was conducted and, and construction was done over the next 17 years. The driver of the project was a New York politician who eventually became governor named DeWitt Clinton. Critics called the project DeWitt's Ditch. And in spite of the criticism and delays and even some death among the workers, uh, he still got it done. And the project was immediately successful upon completion. It, it would have been be like a modern toll road opening up in a, in a congested area. Uh, communities, commodities moving west to east, the price dropped 10 to 1. And people from crowded New England and New York streamed west, entering the Great Lakes system and creating all those states in which it was easy to farm and get their products to market. This success of the canal in part inspired a movement centered around infrastructure and economic growth. In 1830s, factions against what was seen as the despotic tendencies of President Andrew Jackson through his, through his Democratic Party, they nicknamed him King Andrew, and these political dissidents were called Whigs, W-H-I-G-S, which was a, the same party and used to oppose the British king uh, in England. The name dates back to Scotland to a group of people who kind of rebelled against the Church of England. But the Whig movement in America insisted that everyone should follow the Constitution. We shouldn't have all this majoritarianism of J Jacksonian democracy and that lends towards one guy running the show. And they believed economic progress backed by federal resources was the key to lifting everyone up. Hence their affinity for infrastructure projects. Lots of canals like the Erie Canal, though not quite as large, but were built all around the country. And they were the superhighway for America until ironically again from the British, a steam vehicle on rails was introduced to a special track across the New Jersey flatlands in 1831. Um, perhaps more profound to this movement was another little machine which was invented by a Connecticut Yankee visiting the South. In 1792, a Phi Beta Kappa graduate of Yale named Eli Whitney was broke after finishing his education. So he took a job as a private tutor in South Carolina. But as he was sailing there, Whitney was intercepted by the widow of former Revolutionary War General Nathaniel Green. And she lived in Georgia. Uh, Mrs. Green invited Whitney to her plantation where she grew high-value cotton, which was considered a luxury commodity because it was very labor-intensive because she have to pull the seeds out by hand after it blooms. But Whitney was a real tinkerer and he would invent these gadgets and different things. And eventually on 
the green farm, he came up with a way to spin the cotton lint and pull its seeds from like a kind of a mechanical claw. And suddenly it was viable to grow large quantities of cotton. Uh, Whitney patented his invention and found investors and built bigger versions of it, powered it by steam. And suddenly a lot of land was needed to grab and grow cotton because cotton became wildly popular. And suddenly an institution that many believed would die a natural to de death because tobacco production was limited to certain parts of the country. So people didn't think slavery was going to keep going until because specialized farm machinery wasn't invented until the 1950s. Cotton could only be harvested by hand. And that pushed farmers let west in search of more land and that meant more slavery. By the late 1850s, a San Francisco merchant named Levi Strauss began importing a light but durable, what they call a bottom fabric known as cotton jean from his sister's business in St. Louis to sell to gold miners. Uh, cotton then moved from being a, a simply a comfortable undergarment, that's why it was so popular, to a reliable outer garment demanded by everyone. So from coast to coast, the cotton gin was a critical tech that helped make 50 states out of 13, along with the canals. Thanks again for listening. Our journey across basic American politics and government continues next time with episode six, counties, parishes, and townships, oh my, as we drill down on all those civic uh, associations. Until then, keep it free.